Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. Well, Bob, welcome to the show today. Good to have you on uh, with Unlimited. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, excellent. Well, why don't you go ahead and just give me the elevator pitch on Unlimited? Well, I, I've spent 20 years uh, in my career as a systematic investor across a number of uh, areas of the two and 20 business. Uh, first, I was at Bridgewater Associates for almost 15 years, uh, which is known as the world's largest hedge fund, creating investment strategies there, and also spent some time on the venture side of the world, creating, uh, running a systematic venture fund that uh, $125 million systematic venture fund that invested in high potential early stage consumer opportunities. And I think my time at Bridgewater, as well as my time in the venture side of the two and 20 world, I increasingly recognize that, you know, two and 20 businesses are pretty good for the manager and not that great for the investor because, you know, two and 20 managers generate good returns and also charge high fees. And so that got me to thinking starting a few years ago about whether there was a way to bring the concepts of diversified low-cost indexing, which obviously totally changed stock and bond investing, and bring those ideas to the world of 2 and 20. Now, of course, there's a lot of folks who are out there trying to increase access to alternatives. The real question was, how do you do it in a way uh, that not only improves access, but also lowers fees in the same way that Bogle's efforts in stocks and bonds did exactly that? And to do that, um, we we realized that we needed to leverage technology to start to build uh, uh, an infrastructure that would allow us to replicate what these two and 20 managers are doing in close to real time. Uh, and because we're using technology instead of, you know, star PMs or direct investments, we could offer it at a much lower structure. And so that's really what we're all about at Unlimited is diversified low cost two and 20 index replications you know, at a much lower fee structure and available for every investor. So what's the difference between your funds and like an ETF or a mutual fund? Well, we actually have uh, an ETF product in the market. Um, so that is uh, that is one of the ways in which we make our uh, our strategy, these strategies available to every investor. And that's the beautiful thing about ETFs is it doesn't matter if you have, you know, $20 or $20 million, you have the same access to the strategies uh, because of that ETF wrapper making these sort of returns available for everyone. Gotcha. So you've got one public product, your ETF, and then you run everything else through private funds? Yeah, we also have uh, what we refer to as our agile strategy, um, which uh, which is which uses our technology and our repl replication approaches and then combines those uh, hedge fund style replications in ways that uh, tilts towards those strategies that are likely to be, you know, more uh, likely to have better returns given the macroeconomic environment and away from those that uh, are likely to have uh, less effective returns given the macroeconomic environment. So we really have, you know, two products in the market. You can think about our ETF strategy as uh, like an index fund, a mm -hmm. low cost index fund available for everyone, and then a product for institutional investors, which is doing this allocation process on a real time basis between different hedge fund style strategies. Gotcha. And so those are, they're all actively managed then. That's right. I mean, it, it depends on how you think about, you know, actively managed, I think is more of a continuum than it is a black and white point. You know, what we're trying to do with our technology is replicate what how hedge fund managers are positioned. Obviously, hedge fund managers are very active in terms of their shifting of positions through time. And so in that sense, uh, the strategy is actively managed. But the way in which it's done is by looking over the shoulder of those hedge fund style managers, those hedge fund managers and seeing what they're doing. We don't add uh, in our in our index ETF product, we don't add an additional layer of our own proprietary views. And in our agile strategy, we don't add our views on how hedge fund managers should be positioned. We simply add views on which strategies are likely to do better or worse given the macroeconomic conditions. 
Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So tell me about some of the characteristics of these products. I just want to understand your product set before we go any further. So are, are these these are all open ended vehicles then? Well, the uh, the ETF product by definition is uh, an open ended vehicle, and it um, and it seeks to replicate the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry, and so you know at a much lower fee structure than the typical two and twenty. And when you look at how hedge funds have performed over time, a lot of times people look at the net of fees returns of hedge funds, and of course, you know the problem with that is that they're taking off hundreds of basis points in the fees. If you were to look at the gross of fees returns of hedge funds, you know typically what you see is you see strategies that in aggregate are better than stocks over the last 25 or 30 years with about half the monthly volatility and about a third of the drawdown. So that's the sort of return profile that could be quite compelling for many investors, assuming that they can get access to it at a much lower price structure, much lower management fee structure. As for our institutional product, you know, what we're trying to do is uh, deliver a product that's competitive in the in the hedge fund space. And, you know, typically those sorts of products have low core that are competitive, have low correlation to 6040 uh and have you know a good product in that space is you know delivering net of fee sharp ratios that are expected to be above one with you know above uh 10% returns and so that's what we're trying to hit on the institutional product and on the um ETF we're we're mostly trying to hit that aggregate hedge fund industry return gotcha and so how much are you managing in both of these product sets right now yeah, I mean the you know first of all the the business has only been around for less than eighteen months. Our first product, uh, which was the uh, the ETF product, uh, currently has uh, just over forty million dollars in it, um, which is you know quite uh, we like to think quite of the accomplishment given the fact that hedge fund managers have navigated the last year in a way that's much more conservative than uh, than how um, you know index investing has gone, and right. so that is. Uh, you know, I think that's a testament the dozens of independent financial advisors that are invested in that product. I think it's a testament to the value proposition that that product offers. And, and on the on the institutional product, we we just kicked off that process uh, uh, recently uh, and have our first uh, our first client relationship uh, in the last uh, month. Excellent, excellent. And so, what does the future look like for Unlimited? Uh, you bring in multiple products to sets. Are you just optimizing the ones that you have right now, or what's kind of the what's kind of the roadmap for your firm? Well, I I, I mentioned that what we're trying to do is build uh, a set of two and twenty index uh, replications that make those strategies available at low cost for every investor. And so when you think about uh, the advisor directed retail investments, uh, what we see, you know, our first product uh, that was out there, the aggregate hedge fund industry. ETF was really focused on creating sort of a, a standard benchmark uh, or index-like product at a low cost for every investor. Our next steps forward on that and that side of the business is we've actually filed for uh, and gotten approval from the SEC on a suite of uh, underlying substrategies, so not just the aggregate industry uh, return uh, product, but actually all the replications of the underlying substrategies, so things like equity long-short, uh, managed futures, uh, fixed income managers, uh, global macro, those different pieces. Because often when we talk to advisors, what they say is that they're interested in putting together, um, you know, they might have an equity long short manager they like, but they don't have global macro coverage. And so they'd love an index, a low cost index fund for global macro or vice versa. And so we're going to make those individual pieces available uh, for every investor. Uh, and then over time, what we what we're working on is not just we've talked a little a lot about that sort of hedge fund approach that we're doing. Over time, what we expect to do is to create uh, replications, or we've already started working on replication strategies for uh, liquid private equity and liquid venture growth to sort of round out that whole two and twenty world of in low cost index replications. Gotcha. Okay. Fascinating. We're going to come back to this. I want to dive deep into, you know, some of these products and strategies, but first let's take a step back. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got to this point. I'd love to hear more about your, uh, your time at, uh, uh, Bridgewater, uh, and you know, some of the things that you learned and applied there. Uh, why don't you take us back a little bit about kind of your, your career and how you got to where you are? 
Well, I always uh, I like to mention that my my career in investing didn't certainly didn't start with an academic experience. I was a botanist uh, in my uh, ac- academic experience um, with uh, actually an, a, an interest, a personal interest in development economics and public health. And through that experience, I sort of increasingly recognized that macroeconomic dynamics are frankly a big driver of how public health growth economic outcomes occur for most people in the world. And so that got me interested in macro, not not an academic sense, just uh, you know, a curiosity about how uh, development works. And so I went to Bridgewater really with the intention of just being there for a short time and kind of getting paid to learn a lot about how the macro economy works. And really through that time, fell in love with markets and, the, and macro uh, in a way that uh, that has kept me passionate even to this day. Uh, about what's going on. And I think, you know, a big part of why I see, why why I find it particularly interesting is I think you can see uh, the macro economy uh, as sort of a big complex system that you're constantly trying to learn and understand, uh, particularly from the sciences background that really resonated with me. And one in which uh, the sort of truth can be seen on a day-to-day basis through the lenses of the asset markets. And so that's kind of a, an interesting experience because you can actually get that real world feedback. Like, do you understand how the world works or not through that perspective? And so that got me you know, really into sinking my teeth into macro. And then also my time at Bridgewater, um, really deepening my, my understanding and approach related to systematic investing. Um, which I think, you know, personally find very compelling in terms of developing, uh, developing investment strategy, really focused on systemization. And the reason why that is is that um, uh, investing is not just an understanding game. Frankly, it's a head game, and the head game is being able to effectively execute your game plan uh, day in and day out. Because if you have edge and you can keep betting that edge effectively. And you can bet it over many markets and over time, odds are you'll do pretty well, right? Sometimes randomness will go against you. Sometimes it will go in favor. But if you can keep on the field and keep betting based upon your edge, you can really succeed over time. And I found, you know, I really clicked with systemization because it really is a great way to uh, reliably and in a disciplined way, follow your edge when you're thinking about markets. So really suck my teeth into that. And and basically those approaches, the deep understanding of macro and how investing works and how managers work with the systematic investing is really at the core of what we're doing now at Unlimited. Hey guys, thanks for listening. As you know, we don't run ads on this channel. So if you could really help me out, if this podcast has added any value to you or your business, uh, please subscribe, rate, and review. I would appreciate that greatly. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about systematic investing there a little bit. So you are you are developing rules and processes in your investment decision that you're going to apply ir- irregardless of maybe glo- global macro, uh, you know, trends and strategies. Uh, you know, talk to us more about how you actually apply a systematic approach to investing. Yeah, so I think uh, on the, the our replication technology, I think is a really good way of thinking about systematic uh, approaches. Um, you know, in in many ways, what we're what are we trying to do? We're trying to uh, understand the exposures that hedge fund managers have on from a bunch of different hedge fund styles, and the way that we do that is we look at the returns and of those managers and we compare them to the asset markets they could be invested in, and we essentially back out how they're positioned using uh, machine learning approaches. And and one of the way, you know, to to contrast a systematic approach from from a discretionary approach, you know, if I was trying to do that in a discretionary way, what would I do? I'd pull up the returns, I'd eyeball them. I'd say, eh, my gut's telling me they're, you know, these managers are long this and short that. And I'd probably be kind of right, right, over time. But what a systematic approach does is it says, instead of doing that in each month or day, you know, continuously trying to eyeball it and make a a gut feel based upon my understanding, take the decision-making that I'm essentially doing. What are those heuristics that I would use in a discretionary process? And take that understanding and write it down. 
and write it down in a way that, you know, basically takes in inputs in this particular case, asset returns and manager returns and runs the sort of calculation approach that I would want to do in my own head and frankly runs it a lot better than I can do in my own head because there's just a lot more computing horsepower that you can apply to these sorts of problems than what I can just sort of come up with in, in my mind at any point in time and then comes up with an answer at any point in time that is not um, just the computer running on its own. What it's intended to do is reflect the best, most disciplined understanding of the decision rules that I'd like to apply to that problem. And so that's that's literally what we do is uh is has to have we've created a technology that you know seeks to replicate these managers returns and I think the thing that's really uh compelling about that way of thinking is first it has the discipline so you don't get distracted by this thing or that thing when you're trying to meet your investment mandate the distraction of the day-to-day -day incremental information right where I could, you know, read this piece or that piece or Bill Ackman is positioned this way or that way. I could say, you know, if I was doing it discretionarily, that might influence my views in a way that is inappropriate relative to the information value. So it helps with discipline. And then the other thing it really helps with is, is leverage. Like one of the challenges of being a, dis a discretionary investor is there's so much information out there, but by systematizing your approach, what it allows you to do is the day-to-day, -day, essentially what you know already is reflected typically in that approach. And it allows you to spend more time triangulating whether what you understand is right or wrong and evolving the way of decision-making. So there's a lot more learning. Like systemization is benefit beneficial for learning yeah. uh, more than anything, discipline and learning. Okay, so how you know you you've alluded to this several times. So you you do in indices on other alternative asset strategies. So like uh, you know a hedge fund you alluded to long like a long short, maybe an activist approach like Bill Ackman. So I think you know the premise of this all comes from good data. I assume you know so where. Yep. Where are you getting your data, uh, you know, your source data to track and 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 trend on these uh, other alternative asset managers? Well, I think the great thing is there's a ton of data available on how these asset managers are, um, what their what their returns look like at any point in time. There's you know six to eight different uh, uh, performance aggregators in the hedge fund space. There's many, you know, there's a half dozen performance aggregators. Um, in the private side of two and twenty, like uh, you know, venture capital, private equity, private credit, et cetera. And the reason why that is is you know, and, and if you look under the hood, basically every fund that you know is reporting to one or more of these different indices. And and the reason why that is is because all of the funds interested, all the funds involved in the industry want to be able to have that sort of universal benchmark that they can uh, they can point themselves to. Right, compare themselves to. And so through that sort of collective uh, action, basically we have uh, that 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 good, really, that that set of data that we otherwise wouldn't have available to us to really understand how these managers are positioned uh, or how these managers are, uh, what their returns look like at any point in time. And and so that's what we're leveraging uh, to get uh, to get that understanding. We see some of that information on a daily basis. Uh, as well as uh, very high quality information on, on a monthly basis as well. Gotcha. So from an index perspective, how are you actually able to replicate their returns? Uh, you know, it's not, are you going out and you're taking the same positions that these funds are taking? If you think about it, at least on the, um, on the public side, on the hedge fund side, um, you know, there's five trillion dollars of hedge fund assets out in the world, and what that—and that's a huge amount of investment capital. And if you think about that, what that means is that even though there might be uh, any one fund might be invested in some bespoke, you know, idiosyncratic security, to invest five trillion dollars of capital, uh, you you basically have you can only invest in the sixty or eighty most deep liquid markets in the world. Um, because otherwise the markets are just too small to absorb a significant, you know, that significant amount of a ca of capital. And so what we identify the largest liquid markets 
that are most relevant to a particular strategy. So you can imagine a global macro manager, you know, they're investing in uh, currencies and commodities and fixed income and equity indices, et cetera, versus an equity long short manager that might think about things from the perspective of, say, you know, stock sectors or factors or uh, geographies or things or size, things like that. And so, but you put that together, it basically adds up to, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80 of the major liquid markets in the world. Um, basically explains all the, the inevitable risk taking taken by these hedge fund managers. Gotcha. Okay. Crazy. Fascinating. Um, so the, the name of this podcast is, uh, you know, called funds that won, uh, where we, where we interviewed, you know, different investment managers across the alternative landscape. And so I, I do want to ask you the question, Bob, you know, in your opinion, what makes a fund win? Well, I think the, the, it, it comes down to the value proposition, um, uh, more than anything. And, um, because you can, you can get lucky or you can get unlucky, um, and you can be good or you can be not good. But what does the investor actually care about? And what they care about is the value proposition. And what I mean by that is what are, is the nature of the returns that they're seeing, frankly, relative to what they're paying? Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, what we see in this industry, in the, in the hedge fund industry, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on in particular, is that there are a lot of people who are paying very high fees and getting something that is not that great net of fees, right? I, I always like to talk about, um, you know, let's just say we took the generic 10% returning hedge fund, 10% target returning hedge fund. Well, that 10% target returning hedge fund, first you've got your two and 20 fees. So let's bring that down to six, right? Then you've got a situation where let's say if you're a taxable investor in these products, right? The government's taking half, let's bring that down to three. Then let's say you've got an advisor who sort of got you into this product, they're taking one. And then maybe there's some platform fees or something like that in order to get into a particular fund, you know, through the various distributors. So maybe 50 basis points, 25, 50 basis points. Now, hold, hold on, hold on. What we've done now is a person is, the person who's put their capital on the line has paid the manager, the government, their advisor, and the platform distribution all before they have collected one and a half percent, right? Or two and a half percent net of all of those different folks getting paid along the way, right? one and a half percent. Now think about that, right? 10 to six to three to two to one and a half, one and a half percent is the net of fees, net of taxes return. And that's all that the investor cares about, right? Investors only care about their net of fees, net of taxes out outcome, because that is what they have in order to build wealth. And so when I think about what this industry looks like, it has, particularly for taxable investors, a fee problem and a tax problem. And so how do you start to develop strategies and how do you win in this environment is, is by addressing those two key issues. And that's really what we're focused on with this idea of diversified low-cost indexing in 2 and 20, which is to say, cut the fees down from 2 and 20 to under 100 basis point management fee and cut the taxes down by structuring these portfolios in something that is much more tax advantage for the everyday taxable investor. And when you do that, that changes the, the fundamental economics of the whole picture, right? And puts these strategies much more on par with what you'd get from traditional index investing or frankly better. Okay, let's, so let's break this down. So you, So what are your fees then? What, what what fees uh, do you pay for, for our publicly traded product? It's it's under uh, it's ninety five basis points of a management fee. It's about a one percent. Okay, so let me let me ask you this question. We're gonna we're gonna break away from your fund a little bit. And I want to talk you know kind of industries here for a second. So the private markets. Why why would an investor go to the private markets instead of the public markets? Well, I think 
you know, why why does the investor go to the private markets? What they're looking for is differentiated returns that improve their risk return profile. That's that's what they're trying to do. Anyone can buy 6040, right? 6040 costs literally zero and has you know immediate liquidity and serves as the foundation for basically every investor uh when they're thinking about uh you know what the sort of core portfolio element is core portfolio holdings are uh at any point in time so then the question is what are the assets the incremental assets that meaningfully improve holding a 6040 portfolio and that's really where um where something like diversified alpha hedge fund style strategies have the opportunity to uh, improve uh, investors risk return profile right and in particular reducing the volatility of their portfolio without giving up meaningful return if you look at you know traditional hedge fund uh, investment returns okay let me ask you this question then I'll, I promise I'll, I'll group them all together so where do you see the future of the alternative landscape? going future of alternatives over the next let's call it two decades 10 20 years well i think there's going to be a huge fee rationalization in the industry if you if you think about the industry as it stands right now there's something like uh you know 13 trillion dollars of assets and 700 billion dollars a year in fees paid to these managers right if you add that up what that means is a five percent annual fee on average across two and 20 managers. That's hedge funds, venture, private equity, private credit, 500 basis points a year. And the, ama the amazing thing, the really amazing thing about it is that the industry as it stands today literally looks the same as it did 40 years ago, right? S hedge funds, they're basically charging two and 20, you know, instead of uh, two and 20, maybe they charge 1.45 and 16 today. But look, the basic economic structure exists. The basic economic, you know, and it's basically highly paid PMs, you know, who are who are earning that that fee structure. Look at venture capital. It's the same thing. GPs looking, you know, uh entrepreneurs in the eyes and hoping to divine whether or not they're likely to be successful. Looks the same today as it did 40 years ago. Same with private equity. Buy the company, cut the cost, put in the leverage try and get out of there in five years, right? Like same exact basic scheme. You know, there's been some improvements, some technology, some of this, some of that, but the basic economics, the basic economics of the business haven't changed. And so that's really gonna be the question, which is how you know, investors are going to increasingly refuse to stomach paying such exorbitant fees when their net of fees, net of taxes outcomes are so weak to an industry that's basically become complacent, right? That just looks the same today as it did 40 years ago. And so my guess is what we're gonna see is a big uh, divergence in the market. There are managers that justify high fees, absolutely, that generate consistent alpha over time, you know, that justify the fees that they're charging. Those folks are probably gonna get bigger and better. And then there's gonna be a huge swath of the industry that frankly can't compete with replication technology, like what we're building. And those managers will fall out of it, you know, they'll lose, they'll lose because investors will look and say, why would I take a chance on an underperforming manager and pay those incredibly high fees when I have something over here, which is liquid, low cost, tax efficient. And that will set the new benchmark for what is, uh, what is the, what, what you can get cheaply and efficiently versus, you know, something special on top, just in the same way, you know, old equity mutual fund managers are, are dying a slow death because index investing has beaten them out of their game. We'll see the same thing in two and 20. Gotcha. But if everyone does in indices and index funds, there's going to be nothing left to index. Oh, if we get if we get there, well, I'd say there's two things. First of all, if we get there uh, with our indexing, if let's just say a few trillion of that five trillion in hedge funds ends up being indexed, I, we'll be okay. I'll, I'll be I'll be long gone if that happens in terms of building this business. Um, that's the beauty of uh, of the asset management business. It's a hugely scalable business, 
right? You know, you know, a 10 billion AUM business is wildly successful and represents just a teeny tiny portion of a $5 trillion industry. So uh, there's, there's a lot of room for replication to come in and, and, uh, and, and be very successful without disrupting the overall industry. But I also think to the extent that replication is able to outcompete existing low quality managers, um, that actually is a good thing for the replication process. And that's because bad managers falling out of the index will no longer be replicated, which means those folks who are focused on replication will be focused on higher replicating higher quality managers and creating even better returns through the replication process. And so the death of poor quality managers is actually good for the replication industry, not bad. So do you think it's better for retail investors to allocate uh i mean obviously this is probably pretty loaded question bias in your favor <laughs> but you would prefer that the retail investor utilizes public products like uh etfs or something to gain to get their alternatives exposure well the institutional grade maybe works more with direct investment and you know allocation to alternatives uh is that is that an accurate statement is that kind of how you well, I, I think I think the the right way from a portfolio management perspective is to build a low cost diversified portfolio of alternative managers uh, that you know that where the fees that you're paying are justified given the returns that you're getting. And I think one of the one of the really interesting things about the industry is if you let's let's go to the institutional managers. What are the most sophisticated institutional managers doing? What they're doing is that they invest in a lot of managers, right? They could do anything. They have all the capital in the world. But what you see these managers do, say big sovereign wealth funds, big publicly uh, reporting sovereign wealth funds, what they'll do is they'll invest in 50 hedge fund managers, right? They'll invest 20% of their portfolio in 50 hedge fund managers. And the dirty little secret is because they have so much capital, what they do to each one of those hedge fund managers is they tell them, we're not going to pay your two and 20. We're going to pay a third the fees because it's going to be worth it to you, right? Because the incremental dollar, you know, doesn't take that much more effort. And so what they're doing, what the institutional investor is doing today is building a diversified low cost index product of direct investments into these managers, Right. It's just that they have the capital available to force that to happen. And so all all we're saying is, hey, that is the right way to manage money. Right. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Institutional managers have seen this way of working. And I've worked with some of the biggest, you know, the, the most most significant, sophisticated asset managers in the world and seen this up close. Why not take that idea that is that is the right way to manage money and just make that available for the everyday investor. And that's really what we're trying to bridge. We're, we're not, we can't go to all these individual funds and beat them up on fees because, you know, we don't have three, $300 billion to invest in these funds. But instead, what we can do is we can use technology to create something that looks a lot like what the institutional managers are doing. Interesting. So they basically, you're saying these these, these bigger funds are leveraging their big check sizes to negotiate down fees uh, to basically create their own index funds themselves. Uh, That's exactly what they're doing it, because well, they have the power to do it. And if you're, if you're a fund, a, you know, a, a major name fund, if someone's like, well, how, you know, first I'll invest a billion dollars in you. And you're like, okay, that's a great deal. And they're like, how about essentially for free, I invest $2 billion for you. And you're like, well, you know, like, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, if that's, if that's the deal, then, you know, the incremental cost of running between a billion dollars and $2 billion for them for any asset manager, isn't that big a deal. Right. So you'll take the deal and they effectively get because of their economies of scale, much lower fee points than would occur for, you know, for uh, a small scale investor. And this is the problem for a small scale investor yeah. is that a small scale investor you know, they're paying rack rates on these, uh, you know, if they have access, if they're qualified and can invest in these things. The problem is they're paying, you know, they're they're typically only investing in a small handful of funds. The ones that they have available to them have negative selection bias because who's taking, you know, $200,000 checks? That's not a good indication 
for funds to be taking those sorts of checks. They're being charged rack rates of two and 20 and they're being charged platform fees. So like if what the everyday investor is getting that could invest in these funds is they're getting the exact opposite of diversified, low cost, tax efficient exposure. They're getting high cost, tax inefficient, uh, you know, highly concentrated exposures. And that's what we're trying to bridge that gap between how the institutional asset managers are operating and how uh, and what is available to even, I mean, frankly, not not just every investor, but even, you know, relatively wealthy investors, right, who are still stuck in concentrated 2 and 20 style funds. Yeah. No, I got you. Hey, guys. So if you want to learn more about investment funds, uh, how they work, how they're structured, if you want to become a fund manager, how I became a fund manager, visit our YouTube channel for more free value. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. Well, first, first point on that, on this thread is that, have you seen the SEC new private letter ruling where on side letters, uh, you know, with these big LPs that they basically now, uh, if an investor offers it to one individual, they have to offer it to everyone type thing. How do you think that's going to affect, uh, you know, the industry? Well, I think a, a lot of those things, uh, around transparency, uh, particularly, you know, transparent information uh, being distributed to all stakeholders in a fund, I think is a really good thing. And, and like, look, I, I come, you know, today from the 40 act world where, you know, transparency is, uh, is a requirement, right? Daily transparency is a requirement. And the assets are held by a third party in a third party trust, right, to ensure that, you know, I we don't, as a manager, we don't touch the money directly in a 40 act, and no manager touches the money directly in a 40 act product. And the reason why that is that structure exists is, is, is for the good of the investor to ensure that there is independent oversight on the funds that are being deployed. Now that is, that is strictly a benefit for the investor. And for so long, what we've seen, particularly in private vehicles, is an attempt to obfuscate positioning, information, holdings, all of that stuff. And there's a reason why. There's a reason why fraud exists in, pub in private funds and not in public funds, right? Because private funds have lots of different ways in which they can obfuscate their positioning, their securities, their holdings, all of that stuff. Public funds regulated under the 40 Act have no similar ability to hide what's going on. And so it is strictly in the best interest of the investor to move towards a structure where increasingly they have access and confidence to the, to the information available to what's going on with where their money's going, right? That is a good thing for the market. Why are hedge fund managers you know, objecting to this? Because they don't want to do the work. Well, like, look, take it from a guy who's in the 40 act space. Like, that's the trade-off. You get the trust. You have to put in the work. But the benefit is huge because you get the trust. People will trust what you're doing in terms of your strategy. Love it. Bob, speak to me on the reel here. How hard is it to go out and start a fund? <laughs> uh maybe that maybe that chuckle uh uh gives you a little sense as to as to what it's like no i think i think i'd say i'd say two different things one particularly in the etf space it's never been easier to create a fund that can be available for everyone um there's been uh for for two main reasons one there's been a, a real expansion in uh in etf white label providers where fund managers can basically hire specialists who who do the operations related to ETFs at a pretty low cost, all things considered, um, to launch funds and put them into the market. And the great thing about an ETF uh, through most of these uh, these white label providers is that once they're launched, they're available, you know, on your Robinhood account, on you know um, your 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 interactive brokers account, all of those different places. You know, those products are, are readily available. So the 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 ability you know, we've had a real ability a real shift 
uh, in the access of, if you have an idea that could be good, make, make a good ETF or 40 act product, you can get it to market way more cheaply, way more efficiently than you ever have been able to do. And then the second thing is there's been a bunch of regulatory changes, um, which most of which went effective uh, in 2001 and, and were missed by many people because it was COVID and stuff like that, which allows you to run a lot more sophisticated strategies in the ETF wrapper without getting special approval from the SEC. Now, ETF nerds will um, can dork out on this topic, you know, for hours and hours. And trust me, I love hanging out with them. And they can, but I will, I will spare you the details other than to say, as long as you institute frankly, institutional quality, reasonable risk controls, um, you know, and and have transparency into what your fund's positions are. I think there's, there's, you know, there's basically a lot of flexibility today to run sophisticated strategies. The flip side of these, of this whole thing, which is a lot easier access to run more sophisticated strategies, is that there's now a lot more uh, funds that are getting out there. Yeah. Right. There's 3000 ETFs out in the market. How do you differentiate what you're doing relative to others? You know, if you're the 78th dividend weighted ETF, uh, it's it's a real challenge. And so, you know, this this the space is really about how do you create a product that is unique and differentiated and that provides a unique value proposition for uh for investors and then how do you get the word out about what you're doing so you know with uh yeah. with great access comes great challenge yeah so you know i have all these new managers that i work with all the time and you know they have an investment strategy that they've spun out or you know that they've been working on for a while and then they want to take it to you know be an investment manager and i always tell them i'm like look you you can either go private and set up a private fund reg d uh, you could go public, uh, but I always tell them that to start a public product is going to take way longer. It's going to be way more money uh, in startup costs, and it's a lot more of a compliance headache. But ultimately, you know, once you get it up and running, then you know you can scale a lot faster. Um, what would you add to maybe advice as, as as emerging managers are deciding whether to pursue? you know, or execute on their investment strategy via a public vehicle like an ETF versus a, a private fund? I think it really comes down to, um, to your, uh, your ability to generate interest in your product. So if you think about the white label provider costs these days, um, you can get, you know, basically most of them, you get to break even in terms of the operational expenses at about 25 or $30 million AUM. Um, and so the question I think for many investors is, do you have a clear path from where you are today to that sort of AUM threshold? And then of course, you know, beyond that, you, you start to make incremental profit on the particular product. And that path is not necessarily obvious, right? Not every investor has the ability um, or the game plan to go raise that sort of capital uh, amongst you know the the public market you know in the public markets and so I think if you're talking about a very small scale investor that's really the question do you think you have a, a path uh, to get there or not because if you don't get there and you know you you are trying to build a track record with a publicly available product for a period of time in order to then you know make a good a better case for what your strategy is you can frankly lose a lot of money along the way a lot yeah. of operational costs along the way as you're launching the product and so in that case if it's not obvious how you're going to get there you know, thinking about SMAs or a, or a very small fund structure is probably a slightly more efficient way to, to operate until you get the economy of scale. The reality is when you get into the public markets in particular, um, it, it, it's about the quality of your investment product, but there's lots of great investment products. It's also about your ability to do marketing, sales, and distribution. And I, and I won't uh, pull any punches to say that, you know, a big part of my day-to-day -day is not, is, is that exact activity, marketing, sales, and distribution. So if you're, you know, if you're a person who's like, look, I, I, uh, I'm a fund manager who loves running money, but I hate talking to people. Like a public product is not the right product for you, right? If you're not willing to go out there into the market on a, on a, you know, every day, <laughs> doing that sort of sales and distribution activity, 
uh, it's not the right space for you. But for, for me, I, I really love it. I love interacting with, you know, the, the world and on Twitter and YouTube and social media channels we've been able to create and get interest in, which is, you know, meeting advisors where they are and talking to, you know, fascinating advisors with, you know, interesting client circumstances that I, that I think is very exciting and enjoyable, but you really have to be ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not ready for it, it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, Bob, what, what advice do you have for someone who's just starting out? Well, I mean, I think the, my biggest advice is get on the field. Um, and, and that is, you know, the, the world has, has, uh, has changed a lot in the last couple of decades. Like if you go back 20 years, you know, if you were a small scale fund manager, you know, you just didn't have access to institutional quality infrastructure to be able to start to run relatively sophisticated strategies. And, you know, today, just think about it. Like if you, you know, if you want to test out a strategy, you can go open up an interactive brokers account in, you know, five minutes and have access to every, essentially every security in the world. Right. And, and that is an, that is an incredible, incredible uh, opportunity. That means that if you've got an idea or a thought and you can start running money on it, um, you can, you can easily get access to at least the ability to start running those strategies uh, you know, again, for both for the vast majority of investors, of course, there's idiosyncratic stuff maybe you can't do, but you can get on the field relatively quickly. And I'll tell you, having been in the in the in the investing space for for a couple of decades now, there's also no better learning that occurs than when your money's on the line, right? It's it's very easy to uh, speculate what's going on. It's very easy to build, you know simulations or make paper trades like there's nothing like that first point where you open up the book and you're like you're down you know two percent on the day and you're sitting there going okay <laughs> now now <laughs> now we're going yeah <laughs> there's no better learning in this world than losing money um and i fortunately uh, made many bad trades as a uh, as an early uh, an early investor, which uh, taught me a lot of humility uh, in this business. And so, you know, thank God it happened then, because um, it it definitely was a lot of help through the course of my career. Bob, how did you end up? Uh, like, how did you develop the the courage to 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 step away from a you know a great job at a big firm? I mean, there's so many people, you know probably listening to this podcast and out there that have, you know, got the great job, they've got a great salary and, you know, it's time to, you know, to build up the courage to step away and, you know, run your own business and your own investment practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, I, I, um, I'd always enjoyed being, uh, in entrepreneurial environments. Uh, actually I, my father was an entrepreneur, uh, for a long time. And so, um, it's funny if you look at studies of this, like, uh, the, the kids of entrepreneurs are like multiples time more likely to become entrepreneurs themselves. And I think that's because, um, you know, you see the, you see the, the great aspects of it. I, I, let me just, let me say, it's not all great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of hard work as anyone who you talk to has been an entrepreneur before says, but I've always been drawn to that. Even, I mean, even like, when I was in high school and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I went to uh, Bridgewater at a time when it, when it was, you know, very small and it was a challenger. And for me, I really wanted to get back to that um, back to the, you know, the small environment, the everyone, you know, can fit into one room who's trying to, to hash things out and really get back to that sort of challenger uh, type mentality. Um, it's very, very hard to be a real challenger if you're sitting inside a big institution. And so if you're sort of drawn to that idea of, uh, in, you know, if you're drawn to innovation and challenging the status quo, then there really is, you know, very few organizations truly value that because by definition, the large organizations are, um, you know, are, are, are the status quo. Uh, and so it's really about that personal motivation. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, um, I'm working harder today than I've ever worked in my career. And I've worked damn hard in my career. 
<laughs> and nonetheless, it's a lot more fun and enjoyable and, you know, um, because it's a, it's a mission, you know, it's a clear mission to try and do something innovative, you know, with people who, who are around me, who are really passionate about that same thing. And I, you know, I, I'd also say in, uh, industry, the ETF industry that really by definition is the David taking on the Goliath of uh of the asset management world and so that that part is is uh is really fun as well it's a the the etf industry uh for those of you who aren't involved in it is very is, is so incredibly collaborative and supportive and um and 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 positive uh in a way that like you know let's say the hedge fund industry typically doesn't exhibit that those sorts of uh, properties. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Did you start this business with partners or did you go in it by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I had a couple co-founders uh, that um, uh, my day-to-day co-founder, Bruce uh, was in the hedge fund business for many decades as well. Um, uh, as well as some, some old uh, friends, friends from both Bridgewater and college who uh, who helped you know stake us and help develop the original business plan? So I think you know I think it speaks to um, you know part of the 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 success of getting a business off the ground is also recognizing that you you know you're going to need help. Yeah, like that's the reality. Um, any person who is likely uh, you know ha- even a person who's super skilled in one particular area there's a lot that you're not going to know um, and building a good team of partners and advisors and initial capital and things like that is so, it's so incredibly useful. You know, I think we've, we've, the, the world has super focused on this like individual entrepreneur, you know, single, the, the single man entrepreneur, right. Uh, traditionally man, sometimes the solo woman. partner. As, or the solo entrepreneur, mm. as if that is how this works. And that is not how, I mean, even if you talk to those folks, that's not how it works, right? Like the success of these businesses is built on teams, teams of people who are committed, you know, who have, who bring diverse sets of skills to a common mission. And even though that one person may be out there um, as in the limelight, so to speak, the functional reality is that anything, any enterprise that's successful starting from scratch is successful from a group of people coming together, you know, internally and externally when it comes to partners and things like that, getting things off the ground. Love it. What a fun conversation. As we wrap up a couple uh, just personal questions here, uh, any, any uh, either personal or professional habits that you feel like have contributed to your success? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, part of, uh, what I did, uh, a lot at, at Bridgewater and, and I think really shaped my, um, way of thinking as an investor is, uh, is having a lot of discipline about thinking about what's going on in markets and then writing those things down. And I think, um, all to, and I'm, I'm talking about markets because that's what I'm working on and uh, on a day-to-day basis. But I think, the idea is very pertinent to basically anyone who's in a knowledge style industry and a fast evolving knowledge industry, which is, you know, for me every day, you know, I wake up, I look at the markets, I try and understand what's going on. I am curious about it. And I write down the things that I'm seeing. And I actually, I think, you know, uh, when I was at Bridgewater, it was for the widely read daily observations, which is an institutional research piece that, gets read by many of the clients and passed around. And um, after I left, finding that opportunity to do the same thing in places like Twitter and YouTube, where, you know, it's a building that conversation, the forcing mechanism of writing down your thoughts, and then being open-minded to getting the feedback on why those thoughts might be good or bad or what you might be missing is really been sort of central to what I'm doing. So it's, it's almost, you know, to developing as an investment professional. And so it's, it's kind of funny. Like I, it's almost like I can't get out of the habit. Like how do I understand what's going on in the world and managing money and on a day-to-day basis, it's just doing that same thing day in and day out, wake up, look at the markets, ask questions, explore ideas, write them down, get feedback, wake up the next day and do it again. 
So when you say look at the markets, like uh, when you wake up every day, like what are you doing? Are you, is it, you go to Wall Street Journal, you open up your interactive brokers, portal, you open up Bloomberg. Like what are, you, what are you consuming on and what are you looking for specifically every day? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think if we, if we tie back to earlier in this conversation, markets are a lens of what's going on in the global economy, the macro economy at any point in time. And so what I'm doing, uh, I mean, just very functionally, there's, lots of totally free resources that are out there um, is opening up my Bloomberg app and looking at the market action across all the major asset classes in the world, currencies, commodities, uh, fixed income, you know, equities um, and saying, and, and looking at all that market action and trying to under, trying to think through what is this combination of, of dynamics that are going on in the world today that would lead to that combination of market outcomes, hmm. right? So maybe it's, uh, you know, a European inflation report comes in weaker than expectations, or maybe it's, uh, there's, you know, increased geopolitical conflict, or maybe, you know, it's uh, uh, a hot jobs report, right? What are the things that are going on that drive that market action and essentially solving for that process, if we talk about the habit, like that's the habit more than anything I've done literally every day for 20 years um, that has helped deepen my understanding as a market professional. And often, so I'll look at Bloomberg, which is, you know, whatever the Bloomberg app on your phone is pretty good in terms of giving you the major liquid markets. And it costs, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks a year to get access to all the the market pricing on your phone. You don't need a terminal to basically know what's going, you know, to know what's going on. Um, and then also, uh, I use uh, trading economics, also free uh, as well, which gives a really good, rich understanding of all the major economic, macroeconomic releases uh, that are going on in the world. Um, they have a calendar function, very efficient. And, you know, every morning, uh, you know, uh, that that's what I'm looking at, those two things. How uh, long are you are you looking at that data for? I mean, usually I'm looking at it for a relatively short period of time, you know, five or 10 minutes, just trying to to get a scan of things. But what I'd emphasize is it's not just that five or 10 minutes, but it's the five or 10 minutes and then thinking about it and then writing about it and then getting feedback about it in order to sort of square that circle of, yeah. you know, really trying to richly understand what's going on and 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 getting that thought set of thoughts out there and then getting the feedback. Now, of course, any one day I might write about one particular topic or another, but, you know, over time, essentially continuously in that conversation about trying to understand what's going on and what is likely to transpire in the future. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Okay. Last question. Um, on the flip side of that, what are some either per personal or professional pet peeves you have, uh, you know, that, that people do? Oh, pet, <laughs> pet peeves. <laughs> Um, uh, probably my biggest pet peeve is, um, is shading the truth. Um, asset management is, it's a business of trust and there's lots of ways in which, um, the people who are sitting at the table, um, like ourselves, the asset managers are in a highly advantaged position when it comes to their understanding of the markets and when it comes to understanding the strategies that they're uh, that they're talking to investors about. And from that advantage comes a lot of privilege and responsibility to uh, to to act in the right way towards the clients who may not have nearly as much understanding as you do. And there is, uh, it is easy in this business to misrepresent what the reality is of an investment strategy or a set of outcomes um, or the likely uh, success of investment strategy, et cetera. And, um, and that is breaking your fiduciary responsibility to the client. And so, uh, I mean, just the other day, I was looking at something, and I and I and I said, I would rather fail and be honest than shade the truth and succeed. And in this business, if you're not willing to adhere to that principle, 
you are not acting in a way that is responsible to the client. And so every single decision you make comes down to that. Are you doing what's in the best interest of the client and what is close as closely adhering to your best understanding of the truth? Or are you shading things for your own personal advantage? And way too often in this industry, people are doing the second and that is hurting the clients on the other side. Love it. Bob, thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming on and talking about Unlimited. It was a, it was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. All information shared are the sole thoughts and opinions of the author. Do not take any information as legal or financial advice. You should seek a certified accountant and a professional legal team before taking any further action. We are not selling or soliciting a security in any way, shape, or form. This content is for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as financial or legal advice. Clients of Fund Launch or Black Card Capital Partners may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast.